Uh, sorry, I'm, my voice keeps floating in and out. I never know what to expect from it anymore. Uh, it's just, I, but the problem is I have to keep speaking places. So, again, Saturday I'm doing no speaking. Maybe I'll be back to normal by Sunday. Anyway, we're in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, and we are wrapping up. Uh, we're going to start with the last three verses of Paul's foolish speech, which has gone on for quite some time. Uh, it's actually covered in, in part or in whole three of our Wednesday nights. And I would call it the epilogue to Paul's foolish speech. So let me get to the right place. So starting with verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what you... For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. (laughs) I love that comment. So like I said, the epilogue to Paul's foolish speech, he's wrapping that up before he starts to move into his final uh, exhortations and warnings. So he says in these verses, you shouldn't have trashed me, you should have commended me. He's finally just saying, look, the way you're treating me Uh, I'm not expecting to be commended, but I don't expect to be trashed. So if you're going to trash me, I'm going to tell you you should have commended me. And then he finally just says, no way am I inferior to these carpetbaggers. That's just stupid. That's the real foolishness, is thinking that they're superior to me. I was patient and humble, and look at what all that God did. God proved my true apostleship. And, And then he says this, If ever there was a congregation that did not deserve special favor or treatment from me, it was you, Corinth. And yet I gave you special treatment. Isn't that always how it is? The very ones that don't deserve the special treatment, they're the ones that get it. And then, of course, there's great sarcasm at the end of verse 13. Forgive me this wrong. He's just being sarcastic there. So here's how I would sum up the foolish speech. Paul says, Corinthians, you suck, but that's why I'm not an apostle. <laughs> but that's, that's one way of summing it up. <clears throat> but he is also reminding them again that they're in Christ. So he continues with this idea of pro-social shame. But before moving on, I want to dwell just a minute on uh, verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11, part B, the second half of the verse. Because I appreciate this statement. It's interesting. He says, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles even though I'm nothing even though I'm nothing I'm not inferior that is a statement that could sum up the Christian position with life that just could sum it all up I'm nothing meaning I did nothing and there's nothing about me that deserves favor or grace from God and yet I have it and after all what is grace but unmerited favor but that's the whole point. That he didn't do anything to deserve this grace. He just received it. And because I have favor and grace from God, I'm not inferior. And so that just reminds me again 
of some things that we talk about a lot all around Redemption Church that uh, for instance, Tim Mon used to say all the time, and I appreciate it, that Christians should seek to be small. Um, we, we shouldn't gravitate toward the limelight. If God shows us favor, it, the limelight is going to find us, but we shouldn't be trying to gravitate towards it. Um, there's um, uh, Bill Hybels' book, one of my favorite books, and I know Bill Hybels has fallen out of favor, but <clears throat> with a lot of people, but I still appreciate his book. The, the name of the book is Descending into Greatness. Now, of the 20 books that he, that he, had, that he wrote, 19 were bestsellers. This is the only one that wasn't a bestseller. And the reason was because they allowed him to use that title, I believe. Descending into greatness. Who wants to descend into greatness? Nobody. But that book is all about, it's his explication of Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It, and Paul Miller describes it as the J-curve. You have to descend before you can ascend. And, and uh, so, again, it's the idea of seeking to be small, descending into... Um, into greatness and this thinking, this lifestyle this worldview, this philosophy is such a paradox and a dichotomy it's both countercultural and counterintuitive but I also would argue that it's the truth it's Jesus hanging on the cross but fully in control of the universe as he's hanging on the, uh, on the cross he's sovereign over all hanging on the cross and he's winning <clears throat> and I love the um, Simon Sinek, have any, anybody heard of Simon Sinek, the author? He's a kind of a leadership management kind of a guy. Um, he's got some really fun YouTube videos too, if you ever want to watch those. But his most recent book called The Infinite Game, uh, he says one of the problems with the marketplace is when you start to play the finite game uh, uh, and you start to play for short-term wins only and you're not willing to play an infinite game, and I just, I read that book and I thought, well, that's funny because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, all the people sneering at him were playing a finite game. We've won, he's dead. And Jesus is hanging on the cross going, I'm playing a completely different game. I'm playing an infinite game, an eternal game. So now, having said that, I don't ever want to take away from anyone's success or achievements or wealth or prowess or talents or capacity or genius. In fact, I think we need to do a better job of celebrating those in the faith community because I've said this many times, Christians have a way of, of not celebrating victories very well. And maybe that's just because we're always looking over our shoulder. Anyway, I don't know. But, but there is a but to that. But ultimately, we must embrace the reality that Jesus is the priority, that he's great, we're less, and when we finally have the courage to compare ourselves to him and not to the world, we begin to understand. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say one of the most important things you'll ever begin to understand is once you understand who God is, then you'll really understand who you are. And that's when you can start your walk with Christ in, in, in humility and seeking after his will. So then the next paragraph, verses 14 through 18. <clears throat> Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent 
for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, but got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So more arguments that Paul makes about how they haven't treated the Corinthians badly. So verses 14 through 15a is yet another amazing statement about how followers of Jesus should see the world and see their relationships and, dare I say it, see their duty. Duty is a word that's fallen out of favor in our world today, I think. But just think about it generally how, just think generally speaking, how bad parenting is today and then consider the terrible shape that the world is in today. Now, I cannot scientifically prove cause and effect, but I can definitely show a correlation. <laughs> there is a correlation between really bad parenting and, and the fact that we're in, in, in pretty bad shape these days. But ultimately, this verse is not about parenting. It's about how Paul is saying to the Corinthians, hey, I really do love you, Corinthians. I really do. I love you so much that if you want me to come back and to change my plans, to backtrack, I will. And I won't do it for money or accolades or resources. I will do it for you and to serve you because I love you and I'm happy to do it. And by the way, he did go back a third time. And in fact, it's from Corinth in 57 or 58. This letter, 2 Corinthians, was written around 56. It's in 57 or 58 from Corinth that he writes Romans. So then Paul spends the rest of this paragraph, four verses, making the argument that the Corinthians cannot point to one single time that Paul took advantage of, of, of them. He, they can't point to one single time that he served them for anything other than his love for them and that he has never sent anyone else to extract benefits from them for him. He didn't even send anybody to collect on his behalf. And he asked several rhetorical questions, and the answer to each of these rhetorical questions is, of course, no. Paul never did any of those things, and there's no way the Corinthians could legitimately say that, they, that he did. Now, of course, before, because I study rhetoric and I'm a committed word nerd, the last half of verse 15 is something I'd like to talk about and unpack it. He says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now, what does that mean? What is he trying to get across there? There's two schools of thought. The most popular understanding of that statement is that Paul is chiding them, and he's chiding them because for Paul, it seems as though the more he loves the Corinthians, the more he pours into them, and the more he serves their community, the less they love him. The more he does for them, the less they appreciate him. And I know that sometimes marriages can feel like this. Sometimes parents can feel like this. Sometimes friends can get into situations like this. And the gospel says that we're to love and serve others no, no matter if they love and serve us back. But it's also true that sometimes that's just hard, isn't it? It's just hard. You know? Paul, uh, Tom used to say, <clears throat> our founding pastor, at every moment in every relationship when we're relating with somebody else, we're either ministering to them or manipulating them. 
I remember the first time I heard him say that. It's probably 25 or 30 years ago. It was in a Bible study, and uh, it was in the midst of Philippians. And uh, I remember thinking, ah, that's, that's wrong. He's wrong. I'll still come back next week, but he's wrong about that. But that idea haunted me for a long time. <clears throat> and after about six months, I finally concluded that he was right. And the reason is because I had this weird experience that was like a come-to-Jesus moment for me. I like to write handwritten thank-you cards, which, by the way, is a lost art, in case you were wondering about that. When I tell college students that in the marketplace they can differentiate themselves from others by writing handwritten cards, it's like, i got to find a stamp. and you know. <laughs> anyway, um, so... I had written eight or ten cards to people um, about six months after Tom had said this. And about a week had gone by, and I was outside doing some yard work, and I started thinking about the fact that I had sent out all these cards, these handwritten cards, and that I had spent money on stamps and, you know, written the cards and put them in a mailbox and all this effort. And I'm starting to think, not one person has thanked me for the thank you card that I sent them. <laughs> I literally was thinking, what's wrong with these people? I did something really nice for them. And, and so what I felt was an act of ministry, sending somebody a thank you card, was in reality an act of manipulation. And that's when I realized that's probably true. And the problem is my heart is so dark, I don't even know... If I am ministering or manipulating, when I think I'm ministering, maybe I'm manipulating, you know? And so that's just, that's just hard. In the midst of the Christian life, we need to learn how to minister without manipulating and without thinking uh, that anything is going to come in return. And so Paul is acknowledging it and pushing them to see the absurdity of the lessening love for him, uh, even though <clears throat> he knows that that's just the way it is. Now, here's the other possible meaning of this statement. Paul is saying that the Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians that he is not loving them in order to be loved back. He's merely stating a fact in the form of a question. And by doing so, he's telling the Corinthians, hey, I don't care if you love me less. I'm going to keep loving you more no matter what. So he's just stating a fact through a rhetorical question. The reason <clears throat> this is a possible interpretation is actually rooted in the psychology of the first explanation. Many people treat love as an exchange, as a transaction, as a contract. Okay? And they believe that love is, is a contract that requires a return for the love that's given. It's a promise conditioned on a promise. And Paul is saying here in a rhetorically ironic way, I don't care if you love me less. That won't get rid of me. I'm still your spiritual father. So many parents understand this. You know, no matter what your child does, there's no way you're going to disown them. Many parents, not all parents. So again, moving on, verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? <clears throat> it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and you may find me not as you wish. That's an interesting thing that he says there. 
that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have much to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So on the surface, I can see how these verses might be a bit confusing. But again, once you understand context, it's fairly easy to discern what Paul is saying. So we'll go a verse at a time. Verse 21, it does seem as though Paul is defending himself to the Corinthians. But here Paul tells them that the reality is that the only judge and jury that truly counts is God. So after all of his foolish speech, all of his defense, all of his even... Uh, snarkiness he's saying you have to remember though the only judge and jury that truly counts is God he doesn't really care what what the Corinthians verdict is on him and he has a verdict on them as well but ultimately God is the judge but in in specifically whatever the Corinthians verdict is on him he doesn't care only that whatever he's doing, however he's ministering, might lead them to fully embrace and trust the true gospel. And he says that's really all that matters in God's sight. But Paul is beginning to think that his endeavor has failed. And so in verse 22, he says, because you guys don't seem to get it, and because you have been listening to these false apostles, when I do come, we're both going to be disappointed in each other. So I'm going to come, I'm going to rearrange my schedule, and when I get there, It's not going to be a grand reunion. We're just both going to be disappointed in each other because I'm going to find that you're more deeply engaged in the sin that I'm worried about you being engaged in than I thought you were. You're more deeply engaged in it, and you're going to find out that my authority as an apostle is true. And so there's going to be this clash of my um, apostolic authority and the fact that you're rooted in sin primarily as a result of following these interlopers. But then in verse 22, Paul also, Paul also says that this will bring him no pleasure. In fact, it'll even humble or humiliate him. And the reason it would humble or humiliate him because he says they're, they're his children in the faith. They're his beloved children in the faith, but they're living as demons. And so they're doing so because they're listening to the false teachers. And I'll tell you, this is nothing new. We have this in the 21st century as well. Paul is merely the first to experience it, but it happens all over and it happens all the time. People who believe they are following Jesus get hornswoggled by false teachers and led down destructive and disastrous paths all under the guise of wisdom. And it's amazing to me how many people will trust a teacher without ever investigating the scriptures for themselves. That's a problem, but it happens all the time. John tells us in 1 John that we need to test the spirits, that we need to check on the supposed teachers of God's word because there are so many who are perverting and manipulating God's word and who he is. And I honestly think that, especially today, one of the reasons people don't read and study the Bible for themselves and thus rely on these other teachers and charlatans is because they like the stuff that these false teachers are teaching. They like it. And deep down, they might have a sense that it's wrong. And if they go and check it out in the Bible and find out it's wrong, then they're going to have to correct and move away from it. But they like this stuff that these guys are teaching. But this is just like 
George Costanza comes to mind. This like the person who thinks that if they don't go to the doctor, they'll never get cancer. <laughs> you follow that logic? <laughs> okay. George said that in Seinfeld. He had a little spot on his lip and people were worried about what it was and he thought it was cancer and he goes, if I don't go to the doctor, I won't get cancer. <laughs> and Jerry's going, you're an idiot. If you go, they'll catch it early. Anyway, you get it. So it's the same idea. They won't read or study the Bible for themselves because um, they don't want to be confronted in, this, in some of this foolishness. There's one other reason they don't read and study the Bible for themselves. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's hard. It's, you know, people get lazy about that stuff. And they don't know how to read it. Uh, that was my biggest challenge early on when I, when I became a Christian was I, I didn't know what I was reading. I didn't know how to approach it. And it wasn't until I found a really good teacher, and that would be Tom Schrader, that I began to understand how to actually read the Bible, that there's different literary genres and different ways of interpreting. By the way, um, I, some of you know I had that big talk at the Executives Association in Greater Phoenix at, uh, at the end of the year, it was in like December 15th or whatever. And uh, <clears throat> what I did was I gave them six books that they needed to read, that I felt like they needed to read. And uh, um, Deep Work was on the list. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self was on the list. Cynical Theories was on the list. Dopamine Nation. Um, Jonathan Haidt's book. Can't think of the name of it right now. And then, anyway, the last book that I had on the list was Ecclesiastes. <laughs> and I talked about the author and when it was written and all that stuff, and I said how it's, it's probably the most relevant of the books that I told you you should read. Uh, even though it was written 3,000 years ago, I said it's also the shortest book of the ones I recommended. You could read this in 30 minutes, you know. And then I offered, I said, look, I do this with some people. Um, I'd be happy to meet with anybody who wants to go through the book of Ecclesiastes with me verse by verse. I'd love to do that with you. I won't invite you to church. I won't tell you about Jesus. I'll just go through the book of Ecclesiastes with you verse by verse. Um, every couple of weeks, we'll meet for an hour and do that together. And there's 100 people in the audience, and I predicted that absolutely nobody would take me up on it. And six people took me up on it. So I'm meeting with six different people now who said they wanted to go through the book of Ecclesiastes with me. Um, and it's been interesting to sit with them. And the first time I sat with each one of them, I said, all right, I just need to hear your story first, because I don't know them. I know some of them, um, but only superficially. So I said, I want to hear your story and all this. What's your background? What prompted you to want to go do this with me? I'd like to know why you want to do this. Uh, do you have a church background? What's your faith like? I'm just asking. I just want to know where we stand. And I got to tell you, the, the, the spectrum is all the way from, I don't know anything about any of this, and we're starting from scratch, all the way up to a guy that I met with um, two Sundays ago at the Henry for the first time, meeting with him this Sunday for the second time, um, uh, and, and he sat down and he said, well, he said, I know that in the Old Testament, there are five different literary genres. There's law, there's historical narrative, there's wisdom literature, there's poetry, and there's, uh, I forget, and, and, and uh, prophecy. Yeah, and he, and he named them, I'm like, oh, okay. 
<laughs> have you been to seminary? No, I haven't been to seminary. He says, I just dig in and study stuff. And I said, okay, well, maybe we'll learn from each other in the midst of all of this. But anyway, I thought it was really uh, interesting. He's not lazy. That guy's not lazy. So Paul begins to wrap up. First four verses of chapter 13. This is the second time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while I, I, I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but dealing with you, we will live by him and by the, with him and by the power of God. So verse 1, Paul's going to come again because the infiltration of the interlopers and the Corinthians falling for them requires that he return to try to set things straight, to try to clean up this mess. And pastors of churches also need to do this. When there are false teachers, they need to be stopped. It's that simple, but it's no fun. It is not something that anybody looks forward to. And what of this statement that every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses? couple things. He's quoting the Mosaic Law there. He's saying that he won't come to discipline without some measure of due process. So by the way, the whole idea of due process comes from uh, the Mosaic Law. I don't know if you know that. I, I know we run around thinking that we drew, we, we thought it up, you know, but it comes from the Mosaic Law, okay, and that's good, but this is also, this statement is also a preview of the fact that he's going to charge many in the church with heresy. He's going to come and he's going to charge them with that, and there's going to be a church trial of some sort. So Paul means business. And then verse 2 is a further indication that Paul will be seeking to press charges against anyone teaching or living in heresy or false teaching. And it's a bit of snarkiness again. Remember, one of the accusations of the, inter the interlopers made against Paul was that he was soft in person but bold when he was writing. Paul's reminding them that he has in the past and now he has no qualms of coming and confronting issues head on and firmly. So he's coming with power, but it's not his power, it's the power of Christ. Verse 3, Paul gives the reason for the coming charges. They are the ones who started all of this. So he's also reminding them, hey, you know, you're the ones seeking the proof. You're the ones that started this, this little tiff. And so now I need to come and, and demonstrate that I am a legitimate spiritual authority in your life. And Paul will demonstrate that indeed Christ is speaking through him. And then he sets up the gospel reality that the Corinthians have always pushed back against. is that when we are weak, God is strong. And he's going to come in power, but he's going to have the power of Christ. He will appear weak to the Corinthians, but truth be known, uh, he's going to be powerful in Christ. Now, worldly-wise, yeah, he's weak. In a worldly sense, he's going to be weak, but he's going to come very strong. The problem, of course, is the Corinthians are worldly, so Paul is preparing them for, the, here you go, Paul is preparing them for the fact that, remember um, on Sunday, if you were here Sunday, Josh Swift talked about how there's a marketplace scoreboard and a kingdom of God scoreboard, you know? So here's, here's what's happening with Paul, okay? Paul, in a marketplace scoreboard, is 0 and 10, 
and he's coming into the Corinthian church, and the Corinthians are 10 and 0 on the marketplace scoreboard. Yet Paul's going to win. So Paul's going to upset them because he's coming in the power of the kingdom of God and the resurrected Christ. So, verse 4 Paul completes his pronouncement that it is by the power of God that he and his associates operate. Christ appeared weak when he went to the cross. You know he appeared weak. But he lives by the power of God. And so too will Paul in this endeavor. Then verses 5 through 10. He says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when you are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So now he's telling them, look, I'm even praying that you guys will straighten this out before I get there so I don't have to be too severe. But he says in verse 5, examine yourself. And Paul says this a lot. So why? And the reason is because you and I, all of us, human beings for centuries, We are obsessed with comparing ourselves to others in order to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. It's our nature, it's a pathology, and it's ultimately unhelpful. You and I always, always, always have the ability to find somebody who's not as good as us in order to make us feel better about ourselves. Um, This is true even in the prison system. So, and I think you know this too. You know, you have a level one yard, the lowest security yard, short timers, guys that are in there for burglary or simple assault or whatever. And you talk to them and they're saying, and, and their, their thought process, their justification, their, what they say is, well, I'm not as bad as those guys in the level two and level three yards, right? <laughs> so then you go to the level two and level three yards, um, now you have robbery and assault and, you know, all, all that stuff. And they're like, well, I'm not as bad as those guys in the level five yards. Those are the murderers. At least I'm not as bad as them. So they can walk around and say, I'm not as bad as those guys. And then, of course, you go and you talk to the murderers. And guess what? They have someone they can point at, too. The sex offenders. <laughs> so there's this hierarchy of evil in the prison system. See, I'm not as bad as those pederasts, you know. Um, so mostly I work with the sex offenders. Well, guess what? They have somebody that they're going to point at too. Sorry, sorry, Ira. They point at the corrections officers. <laughs> they say, I'd go to jail if I did what they did, you know. It's just you, constant, you can constantly find somebody worse than you, you know. Um, at least I'm no Charles Manson. Well, that's an accomplishment, you know. So, but also, if you're an Eeyore type, you know, no matter what, no matter how well you do, you can always find someone better than you. 
you know. Gosh, I made $5 million last year. Wow, that's great. You had a great year. Ah, I'm no Elon Musk. You know, it's just, the problem is all of this is rooted in pride. It's all of it. No matter which way it goes, it's rooted in pride whenever we're doing this social comparison process to others. And we do it in all areas of life. It's just rooted in pride. That's why we are always to look at ourselves and to look at Jesus. That keeps us humble. It keeps us rooted in reality. Helps us understand who God is so we understand who we are. And then it also helps us to stay unsusceptible to these falsehoods and these heresies and these false teachings. But then you listen to the rest of the verse. Let's hone in on specifically why Paul wants this self-examination here. He says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're even in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test? He starts with, are you even Christians? Now, Paul's not saying they aren't Christians. It's not for him to decide, not for you and me to decide. That's between the person and Jesus. But as fellow believers, we can ask about holding yourself accountable to what the gospel says. Are you living, are you, as Paul would say, are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling in the gospel? Now, I know that's not popular in our culture today, but Scripture often calls us to that discipline, to hold each other accountable, and to confess our sins to one another. And then he says, test yourselves. He says, be honest. Are you serious about the faith, or are you just playing around? Do you believe that Jesus is raised? That's the first and foremost litmus test. Is Jesus raised from the dead? If so, he has authority. And the rest of this just cascades from there. And then do you believe the Bible, God's word, the word of Jesus, that it's true and authoritative? Do you believe the Holy Spirit dwells in you and convicts you of your sin and reveals God to you? Are you willing to pursue God's will and submit yourself to it? And when asked by others, do you affirm your faith in Jesus and even stand by the hard stuff that will get you mocked, canceled, and persecuted? But then look again, right after that, he reassures them that they are in Christ. Again, he continues to come, no matter how hard he confronts them, he continues to remind them that they are in Christ. And one of the reasons he does that is because he was there from the beginning and he saw the testimony of Christ's work in them. So he keeps trying to direct them back to that. He doesn't think that his chastising is necessarily going to bring them back. He, he, really, he wants to chastise them, he needs to chastise them, but ultimately it's going to be the, God redeeming them that's going to bring them back. So he's, he's again, I, I said this earlier, he's merely saying, as he says in so many of his other letters, he's saying, you need to walk or live your life in a manner worthy of your call in the gospel. But then he does end this verse with reality. Maybe this is just not the life you want. Maybe you really don't want to be a believer, and that's part of the problem. And if that's true, just be honest about it and let's move on. But if you aren't a believer, I also have to confront you in that and tell you you can't continue to pollute this community with your teaching. And then verse 7 is once again about how we are only responsible for ourselves. We can't judge or change anyone else. 
but we are still responsible to God for our position in life. And, and again, Paul says that he's not judging them even though they have judged him. And he's reminding them of the danger of not being genuinely self-aware. Uh, how many of you are Office fans? Anybody? So, I mean, one of, one of Michael's greatest problems is that he has no self-awareness. And there's that irony when uh, Andy comes to work for them when they merged the two uh, offices and Andy came to work for him and Andy's bothering Michael and Michael's hiding behind the door and they have that little talking head with him and he says, it's amazing how unaware Andy is of himself. <laughs> it's just the irony there, you know. Paul's saying you need, you need some self-awareness and then let me reread verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. So, you will never find us, Paul is saying, you'll never find us trying to manipulate, retranslate, or reinterpret God's word into falsehoods in order that they might benefit us. But that's exactly what the super apostles were doing. And then verse 9, I'll reread it. For we were glad, we are glad when you are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. So you know how one of our core values at Redemption Church is that we are outward focused. Well, this is an outward focus verse right here. Paul's saying that just like in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, he's more concerned about their spiritual health than even his. Let me just remind you of what he writes in Romans chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's willing to lose his salvation if the nation of Israel would just repent and come to Jesus. And, and he's essentially, he's not saying it as graphically here, but he's essentially saying the same thing to the Corinthians. He's saying, I am more concerned about my your, your faith than I am even about mine. That's how serious he takes it. And then verse 10, once again, Paul talks to the Corinthians about how he uh, speaks to them in person. And here he prays and he asks them to press into the gospel so that when he comes, he can maybe spend his time on more constructive ministry opportunities than on just correction, constant correction. And then we move into his au revoir, 11 through 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So here you go. He just says, please, get it together. <laughs> After all of this, could you just try to get it together? And then that last verse there, verse 14. Notice who is present in verse 14. So there's no, there's no Bible verse that says, here's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as you read through Scripture, you're able to construct the fact that there is a Trinity. We worship one God manifest in three persons. And there they are. There's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there. That's the Trinity. And so, that's it. That's all of Second Corinthians.
And so next week, we start four weeks on spiritual gifts. Uh, we're going to go three weeks, and then we have Ash Wednesday. So we're not going to do anything on Ash Wednesday. And then we'll finish the spiritual gifts the first, um, the first Wednesday in March. So that would be March 1st. So we'll go February 1st, 8th, and 15th, spiritual gifts, Ash Wednesday, February 22nd. March 1st, spiritual gifts, wrap it up. And then we do three weeks of membership class. So that's a bigger deal we, uh, in terms of um, we're, it'll be a completely different group of people that are here uh, for those three weeks. After that, I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do other than this. I am sure of this. I'm going to move to a uh, model where we're doing four to six week series so that there's on-ramps on and off-ramps. So, um, you know, I thought about doing like the book of Deuteronomy over the next three years, but I decided against that. So we'll do shorter books or we'll do more topical studies, things like that. Um, Jackie even came to me. This is very strange that she would do this. She never does this. But she came to me lately and she said, I think it's time to do marriage again. So it's a possibility we'll do something on that again. And she said we should do marriage. That's also weird that she would be willing to do that. So anyway, all right. Uh, Sunday morning, we got one more week on uh, Rich Toward God. And we're going to interview James Dufresne. Uh, do you know James? Ryan? No? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else know James? No? Okay. Well, you'll like James a lot. So we're going to interview him like we interviewed Josh this last week um, after I preach a little bit. So let me pray, and we'll see you Sunday. God, thank you for your word and its truth. And thank you for these letters to the church in Corinth and um, how... Uh, encouraging they are in the fact that Paul says we're saints but also how there's great correction in them and we can learn so much about uh, how we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in the gospel so help us to appropriate that and apply that to our lives we pray that in Jesus name amen thanks for being here we'll see you next week and uh, come prepared to speak in tongues because